Come on up, guys. That's the way I start a, a Christmas week Sunday service, isn't it? That was great. Hey, this is a, this is a unique Sunday. We're going to be celebrating both of the Lord's ordinances this morning, both a baptism now and then the Lord's Supper a little bit later. So uh, Lion and Lamb teaches and believes in what's called believer's baptism, and this is the norm. It's what you see throughout the New Testament. It says those who believed were baptized, and Bridget has believed, and she's being baptized this morning. She'll give us a little bit of her testimony. I do want to reiterate, and I want to say, it's become not necessarily the norm that someone trusts Christ as Savior, and then sometime, maybe down the road, they get baptized. That is not the biblical norm. Baptism is meant to be a step of obedience and faithfulness that we do when we understand we've passed from death to life. And so we encourage anyone who's trusted Christ as Savior and not been baptized, it's an important act of faith and faithfulness. It does not save us. Jesus alone saves us. But it's like putting the ring on my finger when I've been married. Baptism is a symbol that we pass from death to life, that we were our own, and now we are Christ. And we're saying that when we go into the waters of baptism. So Bridget's going to share her story, and then Bridget and Steve will do the baptism. Hi, everyone. Maybe I can pull it down a little bit. There we go. Okay. The first question is, when did I become a Christian? And that would be nearly two years ago. And describe your conversion. God called on me at a time in life I was sure I couldn't escape. Trapped forever in the prison of pain that had become my life, I was in the storm of my drug addiction. A time the only things I ever felt were shame, anger, and sadness. I grew up attending Fairlawn Church of the Nazarene. When I was a child, I would pray that God would end the suffering in my life. And years later, when the pain didn't stop, I turned away from God and hardened my heart toward him bitterly. Eventually, my sin had led me into the dark and I tried to run. After years of being dead in my sin, I felt it was tough, finally time to put an end to all the pain, so I took too many drugs and harmed myself. And with nothing left inside, I had suddenly felt two things in that moment of despair. I felt a grace and a love I knew I was called to accept. I didn't want to die, and that love is Jesus Christ. But I also felt an intense fear of God because I knew I was subject to his wrath, and I knew I was running from him. And if I continued to do so, I was going to die forever and be cast into the lake of fire. No one wants that. Um, in that moment, I could only weep to the Lord, telling him how I chased every high and low, every wicked desire, every path but his. I begged him to change my heart. I began to put my trust in him who is most high, and almost two years have passed trusting, fail, er, failing and succeeding, trusting and obeying the Holy Spirit. In two years, laying grace upon grace, God became the change in me. He saved me from a life of repeated trauma, sinning against God, others, and myself at will. Don't know why, but at will. A life I hated and didn't want to live in, not to mention eternal death and suffering. Trusting Jesus as my Savior has brought gardens upon gardens when there was once nothing but dust. I've been so blessed to be here at Lion and Lamb with such a godly, loving, and beautiful church. God really is so, so great in his faithfulness. He is so good. Thank you, guys.
That is uh, great. Great reminder. Um, guys, I'll pray in a minute. I, I did want to, if I can get past my tears, uh, Isaiah McElroy is back from service, and I encourage you to say hi to Isaiah, and also remember to continue to pray for him, and that's a good thing. Also, both in this auditorium and in the North Edition, uh, would you raise your hand if you intend to be in the welcome membership class, Sunday school class, January, the first four Sundays in January, we, we need to get a, a sense. You're, you're not committing your life, and there's no contract, but we need to get a sense. So two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, I'll just say a dozen in here. And then Andy's getting my count in the North Edition. So I hope you guys are doing your bit over there too. Okay, thank you. And then last, before we pray and get into the message proper, Christmas Eve here this week, Thursday, 6 to 7 p.m. If you can't be here in person, join us. We'll be streaming live online as well. So with that, sorry, let me pray. We'll roll. Father, uh, Bridget's story just reminds us we are lost and helpless and without hope until the light of Christ dawns in our hearts and our lives. We thank you that salvation is by your grace through faith that both are your gifts and that Christ is the ultimate gift above all, uh, the only thing ultimately that we'll care about having and about knowing. We thank you so much for eternal life, that you've done all the work and we get the benefit. And we ask you to glorify yourself in our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you have a study sheet. Uh, Paul David Tripp's pretty well-known pastor, author, writer. He describes worship this way. He said, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. I'll qualify part of what he says here. Worship is not something we do. It is something we do. It is not merely something we do. It defines who we are. So not just something we do, it defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. So guys, by our very creation, by the, the makeup that is us in our humanity, you can't stop worshiping. To his point, it's only a matter of who or what you worship. You can't stop because it's what you're made to do. It identifies us in our humanity. Worship is defined this way, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration. This says for a deity, the truth is you can worship objects also. You can worship things less than deity but we worship something. John Piper has a description, I, I wouldn't call this a definition, but a description of a life of worship. And he's really threaded a bunch of concepts from different texts in Scripture are behind his description here. So he describes worship this way. To know God truly, then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. Then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips, what we say, and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ, what we do. 
Piper in his description lists two of the three kinds of attitudes, images that that Scripture attaches to that concept of worship. Again, this is on your study sheet. If you read in Old or New Testament, there are three concepts that are tied to worship. So if you say, what does worship mean in the Bible, or what does it imply? What's that describing? What should I see? There's three key concepts. The first one is this. It's bowing down. So the most common term in the Old Testament for worship means literally to bow down to. And the same in the New Testament. In fact, in the Greek, the New Testament proskuneo is from two words, a forward or toward, that's pros. And then the second part of that word, kuon, means a dog. So put this in your mind. If you've had a dog, you know how they tend to adore their masters. The image would be like a dog bowing low, coming down to its master and licking its hand or its feet. That's That's the very image in the Greek text. The Hebrew is simply literally to bow down or to weigh down. But the thought is, I'm I'm posturing myself low before my superior. The second aspect of worship that comes up is serving. That is, I serve my deity. The object of my worship, I end up serving. That means my time, my energy, my wealth. And by the way, as we go through this, you can ask yourself, where... Where to whom do I bow, in soul or in body? Or to whom, or what does my service in life look like? That defines the object of our worship. And then the last, probably the thing we tend to think of most, though it's not the most in Scripture, is attributing worth or value. It's to describe the praiseworthiness of the object of your worship. So typically when we think of worship, we might think of singing on Sunday morning when we get together. That's certainly a great application of it. It's probably the third most listed, though, in Scripture. It's not the first or primary one. Now, negatively, if we, if we say on one hand, we are made, can't avoid it, we are made as worshipers, there's a negative or a downside to that. John Calvin, the great reformer, said it this way, the human heart is an idol factory, Because if we're not in right relationship with God Himself, the truth is you will find another object to worship. Again, back to Tripp's definition, it will be someone or something, but it'll be there. And in that sense, it's an idol. Everything short of God Himself that we worship is an idol. Well, Calvin says rightly, the fallen human heart is an idol-making factory. And that's why if you go back to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, if you go back to when God's instituting His covenant relationship with Israel, the first two commands have to do with this sense of worship. So this is from Exodus 20, verses 2-6. through I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First command of all the 600 plus commands in the Mosaic Covenant, you shall have no other gods before me. You don't bow to other gods. You don't serve other gods. You don't praise other gods. Second one, verse 4, don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. For this reason, God's not opposed to art. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." You know, throughout the ancient world, this thought of making images, uh, think of Isaiah, I think it's in the 40s, 
maybe 44, it talks about a craftsman takes a piece of cedar and he carves it and somebody else gilds it and somebody else chains it down. That's the thought here. They were making idols. And that's the thought in the second commandment. So when God institutes covenant with Israel, the first two things he says is, worship only me, don't worship anything or anyone else. But when you read Israel's story, what do you see from 1400 B.C. to the captivity in 600 B.C.? They're idolaters almost all the time. It's a given. Until captivity in Babylon, idolatry is Israel's key sin. You see it over and over again. So we're in the fifth message in the God's Do series, the things we owe God. And today we're talking about the fact that we owe God our worship. We owe God and only God our worship. It's God to whom we should bow in soul and in body. Protestants, we don't do much bowing, do we? As a, as a good Roman Catholic growing up, we had our kneelers. And so for bunches, part, part of the Mass, you're kneeling. Well, it's this thought. You're physically prostrating, bowing before God. That's the thought. It's a healthy thought. In fact, you'll see it throughout both Old and New Testament among those who followed Yahweh slash Jesus. It's God who deserves our service, our energies, our goods, and our wealth. And it's God to whom we should ascribe greatest honor in word, whether that's singing here on Sunday morning or if that's in any other arena. It's God whom we should be known for giving praise to or describing value of. We have a great picture of this this morning in Matthew 2. This is not technically an incarnation passage, a birth passage, but it follows immediately on the birth story of Jesus in Matthew 1. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll open to Matthew 2. This is verses 1 through 12. This is the well-known story of the Magi who come to worship Jesus. So Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the ESV. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And the wise men translates uh, Greek magi or magoi, which is plural for magi. We'll talk about this in a little bit. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, and in the Greek, that's we've come to bow down before him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He's a very jealous, really an insane king. And all Jerusalem with him, assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now this is a this is a take from Micah 5.2. If you look up in your Bible, you'll see that this is not a verbatim quote out of Micah 5. You'll not infrequently see New Testament are not always quotes of the Old Testament or the Old Testament Hebrew. Sometimes they're paraphrased. Sometimes they're referenced to the Greek translation, not the original Hebrew. So if you read Micah 5.2 and see it doesn't say exactly the same thing, as Matthew 2, that's okay, that's normal. But the reference is to Micah 5, where Micah says, this is as Matthew quotes it, references it, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I remember not long ago we talked about the fact that ancient kings and rulers were often seen as shepherds. Shepherd was an image of the ruler or the king in those days. 
Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped. They fell down, they bowed before him. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Before we get into the message proper, I do want to speak to some things, some elements in the story, because it raises all sorts of curiosities. You have a study sheet you've got quoted there from the Holman Bible Dictionary, some information, and we'll add a little bit to that. If you read commentaries or, or any kind of dissertation, or you listen online to teachings from this passage, you'll hear all kinds of differences of opinion on, on lots of elements in this story. Uh, Magi, Holman Bible Dictionary, tells us Eastern wise men, priests, and astrologers expert in interpreting dreams and other magic arts. That's broadly, specifically to Matthew 2. Men whose interpretation of the stars led them to Palestine to find and honor Jesus, the newborn king. The term has a Persian background. The earliest Greek translation from Daniel 2, verses 2 and 10, uses magi to translate the Hebrew term for astrologer. The magi who greeted Jesus' birth may have been from Babylon, but they could have been also from Persia or the Arabian desert. And this is sort of explaining, there's lots of popular myth about the wise men, right? Tons, and almost none of it's biblical. Um, from the three gifts, the deduction was made that they were three in number. The text does not say how many there were. It just says plural. We don't know that there were three. There's three gifts, that's what's listed. So the guess is, well, maybe each one brought a separate gift, three of them. Uh, before AD 225, and Tertullian called them kings. They're, they're just called magi, wise men, uh, academics. Uh, before they were called kings in 225, from the three gifts, the deductions made three in number. Shortly before AD 600, how many here have heard the names of the wise men? <laughs> Where does that come from? <laughs> AD 600, the Armenian infancy gospel named them Melchior, Balthazar, and Gaspar. That's not the Bible. That's just somebody's, okay, here we've got some great names. The visit of the Magi affirms international recognition by leaders of other religions of Jesus' place as the expected king. Uh, what's the star? You know, what's the deal with the star? Guys, I've got, I've got documentary DVDs I'll lend you. You can read my commentary. What was the star? It's not a normal star, clearly, right? Because it appears they see it rise, they see it first in the east, but then they don't see it. And then they see it again. I'm sorry, there's all kinds of things I'd get into. Let me keep quiet so I can keep going forward. Some think it's a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn. Some think it's the star Regulus in the constellation Leo the Lion. It's an unusual star. It's miraculous. It's guiding them. That much we know. Uh, how did they know this star meant a Jewish king? So you got an oddity in the sky, and they're astrologers. They study stuff in the sky. But how do you go from that to this unusual star represents a Jewish king? 
we need to remember, let's just assume they're from the Persia, the Medo-Persian or Babylonian era. That just makes this easier to discuss. Wherever the Jews were, guess what they took with them? They took their Bibles. Did you know that? They took their Bible with them. Any place the Jews were, the, the Jewish scriptures were present. And guys, the wise men, and this was true internationally in those days, you studied other countries' literature and wisdom. In fact, you see in the Babylonian account in Daniel, what do you do with the cream of the crop from the nations you conquer? You make them your own. You bring them in. You bring their learning with them, and then you give them your learning as well. That was true with these guys as well. They had the Jewish Scriptures. And I'll reference some, but they probably knew Jews. Remember, Jews were in Babylon from 600 B.C. until the last century. They were there the whole time. So they would have known Jews, and they certainly had Jewish Scriptures. And with that thought in mind, here's just a sampling. You could multiply this. Here's just a sampling of Scriptures they may have read and associated with the star that they saw rise with a Jewish king being born that wasn't just important to the Jews, but also had standing for the nations, for the Gentiles like them. Go to Genesis 49.10. This is Jacob's prophetic utterance over his sons. And he said, among other things, the scepter, the symbol of kingship or ruling, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. When you read that in the Old Testament, it means non-Jews. It means the nations. So they could have known easily that there's going to be a king that will come from the line of Judah in Israel who's meant to rule Gentiles like us. If you go to Numbers 24, 17 through 19, I do think this is the most important of the texts that speak to the issue of a star representing this divine Jewish king. Now this is Balaam's oracle. You remember Balak had hired Balaam to curse Israel. And what happens every time is the attempt to curse turns into a blessing or a prophetic utterance such as here. Numbers 24 Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Now remember, Balaam gives us about 1400 B.C., 1400 years before Jesus' birth. A star shall come out of Jacob. So I've got a star in reference to Israel. And a scepter, that's a king, shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, that's Israel's neighbor, and break down all the walls of Sheth. And just by the way, this is probably a people group. This isn't Seth. This is, this is a different a Gentile people group in the region of Israel. Break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom, another Jewish neighbor to the south. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir is a part of Edom. The Edomites also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. One from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. So this text specifically talked about a star being associated with a Jewish king who would rule over his neighbors, over the Gentile neighbors. Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11. Uh, Psalm 72 is from Solomon. And it's, uh, my suspicion on this psalm is Solomon's writing it about Israel's king. He could mean himself here, but I think 
probably it's meant prophetically to represent God's uh, call or description of Israel's ideal king, ultimately their Messiah. So Solomon wrote this, May he, God's king in Israel, may he have dominion from sea to sea. Now if you remember, he'll, he'll give some geography here. Israel's border was from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt along the Mediterranean coast. Sea to sea is an endless kingdom. Dominion from sea to sea, from the river, Euphrates, to, not to Egypt, to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Do you see the image there of bowing before, bowing low before the one that is your superior? May his enemies lick the dust. That's a form of worship. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. You remember, tribute was given to your superior. Subject nations gave tribute to the king, the high king that ruled over them. May the kings of Sheba and Seba, that's North Africa, bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. This will be the king of all kings. This will be the king that not one nation worships, that would have been normal, but every nation worships. And the last that I'll reference here, again, thinking of what may have been behind the Magi's thought, their connection with the star and with Jesus' birth. This is Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. And again, you get this sign, the thought of light, star, rising, Gentiles, rulership. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people's but Yahweh will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. That'd be the Magi. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Like a star rising in the east. It's going to draw Gentiles to this Jewish king. Now if you say, uh, on one hand, so there's a star. And let's just say from Jewish texts, they connect it to Israel's divine king. And then you might say, well, why would they care? They don't have to go find him, right? Why would they care enough to follow the star to go find the king and then to bow before him? Whatever else we know or whatever else we guess at, this is my take. They had faith in God and whatever elements of his word they possessed. And then this is key also in my mind. Like Abraham... They travel from the east, assuming they're coming from the Persia area, they travel the Fertile Crescent down into the land of promise because God is guiding them. Remember, before the Jews, Abraham's just another guy in Ur of the Chaldees and then Haran up further north in the Fertile Crescent. There are no Jews before him, right? It's his descendants. And they're doing the same thing Abraham did, but they're Gentiles after Abraham and when the Jewish nation has already come into being. They're following the same pattern of Abraham. We're meant to see them as men of faith. Now their worship specifically, getting to where we want to go. This is verse 11. There's some time, we don't know how much time, between Jesus' birth and their arrival. Jesus is not in a manger. He's in a house when these guys arrive. So there's some period of time when they get here. Verse 11, Matthew 2, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and they worshipped him. They bowed before him. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, 
frankincense, and myrrh. Now, this is a hard picture, I think, for us to take. Historically, this is not that unusual, but certainly for Westerners in today's culture, if you saw a little baby, would you go in and bow down to that baby? Kiss his hand or lick his feet or <laughs> show him subjection or, or offer these crazy expensive gifts, gifts literally fit for a king? It sounds unusual, doesn't it? It wouldn't have been so unusual in those days. But they understood that the infant they were bowing before was in fact this divinely appointed king. So their worship was consistent with bowing before their own king even though he's this little tiny baby at this point for sure. And I want to bring up before I go on this, it is not unusual for us to mistake value based on appearances. And if you go back to Isaiah 52 and 53, when Isaiah describes Jesus, God's divine king, in his adulthood, he says he has no image, no beauty, no, he's not handsome. It says there's nothing about his physical persona that would have attracted others to him. One. And two, it says that in his tortures before his crucifixion, he's marred more than any other man. So here is God's divinely appointed king described by Isaiah in his adulthood, not as in infancy, but it's like you're not going to look at him and say, that guy looks like a king, I want to bow down and worship. And we've got to be so careful that we do not attribute value or honor or worship based solely on external appearances. And this does not stop with Jesus. In fact, the guy that wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else, the Apostle Paul, do you remember how he's described as well? He has no physical appearance that anyone's drawn to him. He does not have an orator's voice. His physical appearance is weak. His voice is not somebody that you'd want to sit and listen to, and yet he is God's guy for giving more of the New Testament than anyone else. And if you based your estimation of him on appearances, you'd be wrong. The Magi saw Jesus through the eyes of faith and said, that's him. You know, if you think of Luke's Gospel and Simeon in the temple as well, Simeon sees a baby and he says, Lord, I get it. This is him. This is the Messiah. He's a little infant. I have to infer all kinds of things because it's not obvious when I see him. They knew this was still, this was God's divinely appointed king. This was the Jews' Messiah. And this was ultimately the Gentiles' ultimate king. They knew the infant to be God's divinely appointed king. And they owned him. And they worshipped before him. And they gave him gifts fit for a king. Gold is obvious. A frankincense and myrrh, they are aromatic resins from small trees in the Arabian Peninsula. And you know, you get this by you cut the tree trunk a little bit and you let the sap bleed out and then it ultimately crystallizes because the moisture is lost in the air. You can't get very much of it at a time. It was very expensive. These ultimately were really gifts fit for a king. So the Magi are worshipers of the living and true God. They bow in faith to Jesus and they offer Him sacrifice in their gifts. Those are the first two of the three things we said that were the typical keys to worship throughout the Scriptures. Now, beyond that, and this is important, you know, when you talk about, um, I'm a fan of literary criticism, by which we talk about a way of looking at Scripture as literature 
and how it's put together and therefore what we're meant to see. So guys, for Matthew, the Magi are not incidental to his gospel. They're key. Because he means us to see something in his gospel and he means it to ring loudly in our mind. If you read almost any introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, it will say it's written primarily for Jews to show Jews that Jesus is the Messianic King. And to that I say, absolutely. And this is the other thing. It's meant to show He's not King of the Jews only. He's the King of all kings. So, when you read Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1, Matthew includes the Gentile mothers in Jesus' genealogy. He does that to show you that Jesus comes from Gentiles as well as Jews. You get to chapter 2 and the Gentile magi are following the same path Abraham to come worship God's divine king. You get to Matthew 12 and Jesus rebukes the Jews who don't believe in him and he contrasts them with the queen of Sheba who did believe a Gentile. And he contrasts them with the men, the pagans of Nineveh, who believed. The Gentiles who believed. And then you get, of course, to Matthew 28. And what's Jesus' parting shot in this gospel? It's go and make disciples, my followers, where? In all the nations. You see the same thing in Luke. And when Acts opens up, it's the same thing. Because Matthew means us to see Jesus was always meant for Gentiles as well as Jews, he's not merely a Jewish king. He's the king of all kings, as well as being God's divinely appointed son. The Magi also foreshadow the fulfillment of this from the Old Testament. I think for time's sake, I'll just mention a couple of these. These are, references are on your study sheet. Uh, let me mention Isaiah 19 because I think it gets such short shrift. If you haven't read Isaiah 19, it bears reading verses 19 through 25 especially. Isaiah 19 says that in the future millennial kingdom, Egypt, Israel, and Assyria will be like three brothers worshiping the same God. The Egyptians will be counted just like Jews. The Assyrians will be counted just like Jews. That there's this time in the future when Jesus rules in which they are one entity, like the Trinity, three disparate, different nations combined into one entity in Jesus' messianic reign. That the Gentiles would be brought in when Jesus rules. Also, Zechariah 14, 16. Uh, Zechariah 14, the, the end of that book is, is prophetic and it's warfare and it's numbers of things. But this verse 16 specifically, everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king and the king, identified in Zechariah 14, is Yahweh of hosts. It's not merely a descendant of David, it's God in flesh. And to keep the feast of booths. Gentiles are going to worship God's divinely appointed king. And you see some element of fulfillment of that in the Magi. They had enough of God's word and revelation to come to Jesus and bow before him and worship him. And they are meant to inspire all Jews and Gentiles to own Jesus as Christ and Lord and to give Him His due, which is worship. And in that direction, the Magi remind us, you cannot worship God, Yahweh, Creator, 
maker, ultimate God, if you refuse to worship Jesus. It's an impossibility. It cannot happen. Jesus says it this way in John 5, 22 and 23. The Father judges no one, but He's given all judgment to the Son. Friends, it's the Son that people will stand before for the Bema Seat judgment where we give an account for our lives as believers. And it's Jesus who's on the great white throne in Revelation 20 who will judge sinners before they go into the lake of fire. The Father has commissioned Jesus as His divine judge. Why did He do that? Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And what is honor? Honor is to give value, esteem, and worship. Anyone who refuses to worship Jesus cannot worship God, God the Father, the true and living God. It's an impossibility. You'll see more of that theme in 1 John as well. Worshiping God, uh, and this is where this, the rubber meets the road for us. Guys, worshiping God is meant to be your lifestyle and mine as believers. Now, everyone's called and commissioned to worship. Believers have this unique call to see our lives as worship with every breath. And this is a challenge. And by the way, uh, Larry says this. Many of the guys that teach, they'll say, I'm, I'm speaking to myself. It's challenging to read this stuff because you've got to... You got to do your own inventory. Lord, am I, am I doing this? Or am I just talking about it? Does my life reflect this? And we need to think about this. If you read the Epistle to the Romans, this is a short digression, I promise. You see the universal guilt of humanity, right? All are guilty. And then you see the universal provision God's grace in Christ received by faith. And then you see that we've got freedom from sin, from sin's power, because we've been united with Jesus in His death, and we have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit with us. And then you see that God has so committed Himself to us, we are so fully saved that nothing can separate you as a believer from God's love. His promise to you, like life in Christ, is eternal, just like His promises to Israel. That's chapters 9, 10, 11. So that's all the doctrine in Romans. And when you get to chapter 12 and application begins, where does Paul start? He starts at worship. So Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, based on all the things he's just said, all the doctrine, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now remember, the day and the time Paul's writing Everybody worshipped. Uh, everybody worshipped. There were no agnostics and there were no atheists in the ancient world. Everybody worshipped. And so everyone had this image of, I take this animal, it's slain, and its body is put on an altar and it's burned up because it belongs to the God. Whatever God I'm worshipping, that animal on that altar, I've said it's not mine, it's the God's. I worship by giving that God my due in that animal carcass. And for Jews, the whole burnt offering, unlike most of the other offerings, the priest took none of it, the worshiper took none of it, the animal in its totality was consumed on the altar. So when Jews or Gentiles heard this, the image in their mind is, my body is like that animal's on the altar and it's devoted entirely to God. It's not mine anymore, it doesn't belong to anyone else, uniquely so, 
It is God's as an act of worship. That's what they see. And also, when this says it is your spiritual worship, the Greek is not spiritual. It's logikos. It's your rational service. It's your reasonable service. It's as if God says, Paul says, if you look at what God has done for you in Christ, the only rational, reasonable thing you can do is offer God yourself and your life as an act of worship. Every moment, every day, every breath. Anything less than that is a deficient application of what God has done for us in Christ. So those magi traveling the long distance, searching, 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 bowing down and giving the gifts, that's the image that we're supposed to bring when we see ourselves as worship. We're giving ourselves and all we are and all we have to God as our reasonable act of worship. It's the least we should do. It's not extra credit. God deserves our worship in everything we have. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says essentially the same thing. Our reasonable, appropriate worship is meant to be the totality of our lives. Each day as it comes, we owe God all we are, all we have. Worship isn't a little of this and a little of that. It's everything. Everything. By the way, on your study sheet, you've got a place to reflect on this. If I look at my life, this would be true for all of us in one way or another. I, there's probably areas in my life in which I look and I say, I sort of reference and I say, I feel like I'm, I'm characterized by worship in this arena of my life. And it could be anything. It could be service. It could be giving. It could be uh, just meeting with the Lord. It could be numbers of areas. And there's probably other areas of my life where I say, I haven't given that to the Lord. I don't worship the Lord in that sphere of my existence and my being. Well, that's good to know because we want to repent of that. Guys, by the way, you cannot gain by withholding from God. You only lose. When we keep something back because we think we're getting something for it, we're losing. We're not gaining, we're losing. When we worship God with all that we are and have, that's when we are most fully liberated we get to enjoy God as He is. We're the least restrained by our fallen natural tendencies. Worshiping God, being crazy about God is the best thing you and I can do. Listen to this too. I love this from the Book of Common Prayer. This is what the bridegroom says to his bride in the Old English language in the Book of Common Prayer. This is the, from the marriage ceremony. This is what the bridegroom says. He says to his bride, with this ring I thee wed. I'm yours and you're mine. With my body I thee worship. My body is yours. We're bound to each other physically. You get what I am physically. And last, with all my worldly goods I thee endow. That's worship. We are bound together as one. You get all I am and you get all I have. That's worship. That's exactly worship. Same thing. Jesus is God's gift to the world. And our response is meant to be like the Magi. We're meant to come and bow before Him as an act of worship. Jesus, you get all that I am. You get all that I have. Uh, people talk, it's kind of silly I think, they talk about radical faith and passionate worship. If your faith isn't radical, do you have faith? By its nature, faith is radical. 
And if you don't worship with your heart and your soul, with your passions, could you call that worship? I wouldn't. Now, we might say, Lord, I'm obeying you and I'm not feeling it. I get that. And we say, with our will, we worship. I'm good with that because, frankly, I do quite a bit of that. You know, Lord, I'm not feeling it, but I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do it anyway. Even though my joy's not in it, I still know it's the right thing to do. But guys, our worship should be, of course, driven by our passions and our emotions, the affections of our heart. I love this too. This is, these are a, a lyric from Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Isn't that good? That's the thought. That's Romans 12. Uh, I want to close with this. This is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the most important of the Messianic Psalms. And Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts. It's quoted in the New Testament. Uh, in Psalm 2, the nations rage. The peoples devise a futile, vain thing. They're trying to establish their own king and their own kingdom, their own sovereignty. They're breaking God's chains and they're saying, we'll do it our way. And in that context, do you remember what the text says? It says, in the heavens God laughs. He holds them in derision. And then following, this is what he says. The sons, God the Son speaking, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. The Gentiles, the Magi, most of us. And the ends of the earth, your possession, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's exactly the language that comes up in Revelation 19 in the second coming of Jesus. Verse 10, because God's establishing His King, His divine King, and because He'll rule over all, not just Jews but Gentiles, all the world, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. And the language here again is the thought of I'm bowing before the Son, the King, and I'm kissing His feet or His hands in subjection. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This psalm will still be fulfilled in its entirety. The world is still under God's mandate to submit itself to His divine Son and King. The call on the world today is still to kiss the Son, to bow before the Son and to worship Him. It's our reasonable service to worship Jesus as King. Can we get the worship team up and uh, text up on the screen? Do you have the text? Great, thank you. Guys, let's stand and we'll close by reading this together. This is Psalm 95. We're standing up. We're standing. Has it been that long? We're standing. Sorry. Let's read together. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord.